0: Welcome to the Central Library. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Annie Pratt Free Library, and this is a very, very special edition of our Writer's Live series, all part of our Women's History Month celebration. Now, I know I could, I'll take a wild guess, but I bet a lot of you are fans and even subscribers of The New Yorker is that too wild no uh like many of us and so you are excited to hear from our special guests all month long we've been celebrating women's history and this i think you would might also agree comes at a very timely part of our history now as women's rights are in the headlines and they're even being spotlighted uh during this election year Uh, We're very grateful for the support of our patrons, like you, who've been actively engaged in attending the programs. And this uh, celebration of Women's History Month, just like other special months, I think, shouldn't be celebrated just in one month, but all year round. The popularity of genealogical shows on TV has really brought a lot of people back into the library to find out about their ancestors, the great men and women, and you should see on this page, women is this big, that are part of their heritage and the heritage of the, the country. Many of you may not know that when you look at the commercials on television that talk about uh, popular databases to find out about your history, you can actually get on those databases from the Pratt Library's website and in this building and all the branches for free. That's our middle name, Enoch Pratt Free Library. So we will hope that we hope that tonight's program will inspire you to find out more about the great women in your lives and your own history. I would be remiss if I didn't make one quick plug for some authors that are coming soon, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, former Secretary of State, will be here on um, May the 10th discussing her new book. And on Saturday, April 14th, we are hosting at the Central Library the City Lit Festival. We will have dozens of writers and poets, including Steve Jobs's uh, biographer, Walter Isaacson, and we think it's gonna be an exciting, exciting day. For a complete schedule, you can look at our compass or visit us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can of course look at our events calendar compass. I mentioned that our special guest tonight has been and is the executive editor of The New Yorker, and she's been that, in that position since January of 1996. She also writes for the magazine and is the moderator of its weekly podcast, The Political Scene. She's on the faculty of the Writers' Institute of Cooney's uh, Graduate Center, where she teaches a course on narrative nonfiction. She was also national affairs editor at Newsweek from 1993 to 1994, 95, and before that was the longtime executive editor at The New Republic. Tonight, she's here to talk about her remarkable new book, Nothing daunted the unexpected education of two society girls in the West. This is a great story of two women, Dorothy Woodruff and Rosamond Underwood, who left their affluent lives in Auburn, New York, and went on an epic journey to Colorado to teach the children of homesteaders. We are so pleased that nearly 100 years later, Dorothy Woodruff's granddaughter is here to tell the story. So without further ado, please welcome author and I say new friend, uh, Dorothy Wickenden.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, What a great series of events you've got going. I wish I I lived down here so I could come to some of the upcoming ones. Um, Thank you all for coming tonight. You know, I realized as I was um, thinking about preparing this talk that there are a few Baltimore connections in my book, which proved the has proved the hunch that I developed as I was working on my research. And as I traveled, and as I subsequently traveled around the country to talk about the book, that the theory theory of six degrees of separation is absolutely true. It's just everywhere I turned, there was some connection, and this is this goes on for a hundred years, and you'll see some of them as I, as I go on. But first, I just wanted to give you a little background so you can see how extraordinarily aberrant it was for these two women to abandon their sheltered family lives, shun marriage, and set off for the West. We had a time when it was still where they were going was still the Wild West. They were born two centuries ago in 1887 in Auburn, New York, which was a small city of about 30,000 people in the Finger Lakes region. And it was one of the wealthiest cities in the state, thanks to very shrewd investments uh, by its entrepreneurs and uh, at the start of the Industrial Revolution. So I'll just give you some, some if I can figure out how to use this thing, some peaks uh, of, of sort of where they came from so you can then see where they're going to end up going. Uh, that, so that's the main business district, Genesee Street, early on. This was uh, came my grandmother in the bottom row and Rosmond in the uh, over second to the... My second to my left on the, in the second row for one of the first kindergartens in the country. Uh, this, this was the, the version, a 19th century version of a play date. This is my grandmother and some of her friends in a little toy, a little tiny uh, pony and carriage ride in front of her grandmother's house where she spent a lot of time. Uh, and then this is one of my favorite pictures. This has been in my family. I've seen it for years and years. But I somehow didn't study it really until I got going on the book. And I started looking at the, what they wore every day. Everything was handmade. My grandmother's the little girl in the middle, of the, in the front. And that was taken on New Year's Day in 1896. And that little girl is the future pioneer teacher. So it just gives you a sense of what, where, she was, where she was from. And I'm just going to read you a very quick bit about uh, the Auburn social milieu. Ross's father, George Underwood, was a county judge, and Dorothy's, John Herman Woodruff, owned Auburn Button Works, which made pearl and shellac buttons, butt plates for rifles, and later 78 RPM records. The Button Works and the Logan Silk Mills, jointly owned by Dorothy's father and a maternal uncle, were housed in a factory about a mile north of the Woodruff's house. They were two of the town's early manufactories, as they were called. Others produced ropes, carpets, clothes ringers, farm machinery, and shoes. Auburn's main arteries, Genesee and South Street, which formed a crooked T, were more like boulevards in the residential neighborhoods, lined with slate sidewalks and stately homes. Majestic old elms arched across and met in the middle. The ties within families and among friends were strong, and the local aristocracy uh, perpetuated itself through marriage. Men returned from New York City after making money in banking or railroads, opened law practices and businesses in town, or worked with their brothers and fathers, cousins and uncles. Some never left home at all. Sons and daughters inherited their elders' names and their fortunes. Most women married young and began building their own families. One chronicler observed, prick South Street at one end and it bleeds at the other. But Auburn wasn't re- just about money and inbred elitism, as I found as I began uh, digging a little bit deeper. It was a very conservative city that, nonetheless, had been infiltrated by a number of men and women who became some of the most famous radicals in American history. Dorothy had said in her uh, w- when I was in college, she did an oral history in my in my parents' house, and she had said just in a very offhand way that her grandfather had lived next door to William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State. And I sort of thought, well. I doubt that somehow, but I went to the Seward House in Auburn, and there, you know, the the house, her house, her grandfather's house is gone, but the the executive director confirmed that, yes indeed, Mr. Woodruff lived right next door. And Seward uh, also became one of the country's key abolitionists. Auburn was in that part of the the country that was um, just a hotbed of of, uh, abolitionism, and it was a major stop on the Underground Railroad. And when Dorothy and Roz were little, they sometimes saw the, and I just love some of these details I picked up, they saw the elderly Harriet Tubman, who must have been in her 80s by then, whom Seward had convinced to move to Auburn after the Civil War, she saw, they saw her riding her bicycle up and down South Street, this very grand street, stopping to ask the ladies of the house for donations for the home she ran for indigent and Asian blacks. But, um, oh, and another friend of Seward's was Martha Wright, who organized the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention for Women's Rights, along with her sister, Lucretia Mott, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And Martha was at dinner, a dinner party one night, so the story goes, and someone whispered to her neighbor that Martha was a very dangerous woman. So it was this very interesting, unusual combination of, of people all sort of coming together, and At that time, despite the advances in technology and the progressive thinking of some of these people, Auburn society was really very deeply rooted in the Victorian age. And that was what my grandmother grew up with as well. Um, So they they were attached to these rituals that have been carried on for generations. Uh, Afternoon card parties, meetings of the Whist Club, dances every Saturday night at the Iwasco Country Club where the young ladies were chaperoned by their parents. there's Dorothy, as a young girl getting ready for her first party. She wrote out, she had scrawled on the back of the photograph that that was her first party dress. She was 12 years old, and she was going with Henry Wadsworth. So as she grew up, she she absorbed the city's spirit of entrepreneurship and noblesse oblige, along with some of the dissident thinking about the rights of blacks and women and the working class. And I, I suddenly realized that. Kids didn't really learn history in history books uh, in those days because it was so young. The country was so incredibly young. So the children of Auburn's gentry really learned their history, most of it, through the stories their parents and grandparents told about the city's prominent citizens. So one of them was Eliza Osborne, Martha Wright's daughter who bought Dorothy's grandfather's house next to the Seward Mansion and spent 20 years as the president of the local chapter of the Women's Education and Industrial Union, which was a group devoted to the moral and social welfare of local working girls. And so Dorothy and Roz grew up in this milieu and they later organized their own suffrage events there. It was very, very, just, they were sort of steeped in this stuff. In 1913, Eliza's son, Thomas Mott Osborne, became the chairman of a state commission on prison reform the Auburn State Prison, as it was called then, provided um, cheap contract labor for local industries, and it helped what was then a frontier village, they, then it was on the edge of you know America, uh, develop into what, what they thought was a, very, was a very modern city. And the prison, which was a total horror show, was, was seen as very innovative at the time, with its solitary cells for inmates. That was seen as a big improvement. Tw- a 24-hour rule of silence. The striped uniforms, which were invented there, the workshops, and the men had to go and, and work all day, every day, and um, produce all of these, uh, the furniture and various other things for local businesses. And then the Auburn invented lockstep. So quickly, just there's the outside of the prison, which is still there. Uh, and that's the weaving shop, and you can see them in their uniforms as they, uh, as they do their work. It also housed the country's first electric chair and used several forms of brutal corporal punishment, a specially designed cat-of-nine-tails with lashes made out of waxed shoe thread, if you can imagine it, uh, and a three-foot wooden paddle covered with, leather, uh, covered with leather. And Osborne became known, he was just completely, uh, you know, just an ardent reformer, and he became known around the world for the reforms he introduced in Auburn and Sing Sing. So that was the other side of the tracks. But Dorothy and Roz were really pretty protected from what went on in their prison. Their parents didn't want them to know all of this. And, or about the terrible working conditions, by the way, for these girls who worked in these factories that, that at least Dorothy's father, you know, he owned one of them. Um, so they had, they had a very happy, tranquil childhood. They played in Auburn and in Wasco, which is a little town nearby with one of the, on one of the Finger Lakes, where Roz's parents had a cottage on the lake, and they spent their summers. So there they are on South Street, the two best friends. And that was the Lady of the Lake Steamboat, which uh, went up and down the the lake and would drop residents off at their cottages. And uh, (laughs) Dorothy, again, always the shortest one, she was four feet 11 in the middle, and Roz on the far side with the horrible bathing cap on and they're, they're friends. And they were just, these girls were inseparable. They went to grade school together, as you saw they went to kindergarten, which is where they met, and then they went to Smith College in 1905. And there they are with their big hats and their beautiful white dresses. Uh, now, my grandmother, it has to be said, she, and she said it herself, was a bad student. She just didn't take her studies very seriously. And it, this was a very, and is, a very tough school. It, they pr- it was one of the first women's colleges, and it prided itself on providing a curriculum that was just as rigorous as anything you'd get at Harvard or Yale or, or Amherst. And she, my grandmother, was put on probation after her first semester because she'd gotten, as I I looked up her transcript at Smith to be sure her recollections were right, And she had an unbelievable memory, very accurate. And indeed, she'd gotten Ds in her two English classes, C-minus in French, B-minus in German, C-minus in Latin, and C-plus in mathematics. And then I saw subsequent years her, her performance improved a little bit, but she really didn't distinguish herself intellectually as some of her predecessors had and here's where one of the Baltimore connections comes in. The great grandmother of one of my good friends in Pelham, New York, which is where I live, was named Jane Kelly, and she graduated in the class of 1888, if you can imagine. And she so she graduated from Smith, and then she went, she wanted to be a doctor. So she went to Northwestern University Women's Medical School, because that, they, were, they were segregated. But then she went to Johns Hopkins for a year of postgraduate work. And this, you know, good for Johns Hopkins, which was enlightened enough to have women in the classroom, however, they were made to sit in the balcony behind a curtain. so you know, during lectures, and I was wondering, I don't know how they learned about surgery and everything, but anyway, there she was, and she became a doctor, and she had a family, and she was one of the one of the early uh, women who learned how to balance family and career. But Dorothy did not have interest any interest in graduate school, and she described herself as romping through Smith. She told us in this oral history, I loved every minute. I joined all of the fun and social clubs there were, and then this had always amazed me. You know, here was my my little delicate, in many ways Victorian grandmother with her beautiful white hair, brilliant, witty, and she'd always inculcated the importance of a good education. You know, there she is, a party girl at Smith. I just <laughs> seemed unbelievable. So um just a couple quick slides of Smith. There they and just ignore that little thing in the in the bottom. I had some trouble with my PowerPoint. Uh, so this must have been at a special event when they all, it was probably graduation or something like that, where they all dressed in their their white, their white dresses. This was Delta Sigma, the invitation house she ended up joining. And uh, some of her friends out in front, she's on on the left here, my left on the with the sailor, one of the sailor suits. And then, uh, as you can see, she she did enjoy herself. Men were occasionally invited to come up for special occasions, and she's in the middle there holding the hand of one of the young men. Uh, So she loved these. But after graduation, neither she nor Roz was ready to get married, which was, of course, what most of these women did. Um, So instead, they convinced Roz's parents to take them on a grand tour of Europe. Her parents were extremely well-to-do, and this is what other women did, young women did, and the hope was that they would marry some eligible bachelor on board the ship or, you know, in the proper social circles in, in uh, Europe. So they went on this grand tour of Europe with, with Ross's parents and her brother Arthur, and there's Dorothy with Mrs. Underwood, a very grand dame, and uh, Dorothy playing tennis in Cortina with Arthur and Roz. And this is one of my favorites too. She, you know, she looks like something out of Edith Wharton. Uh, this is was taken taken in Cannes. So they spent the final months on their own in Paris, where they studied French, and they had a fabulous time exploring the city on their own without a chaperone, which was again, you know, unheard of at the time. And it was 1910, which if anybody knows about that period in in Paris, it was just a totally explosive time in the arts in particular, and just an incredible moment to be there. So halfway through my research, my aunt, um, who's now 90 years old, happened to disclose, she just went through some of her stuff, and she found 40 letters that my grandmother had written home to all of her siblings. She had seven siblings, and her mother and father from their year there, and she was 22 years old, and they're just fabulous. And so they describe a lot of the things they did, and she writes about seeing Nijinsky dance and Isadora Duncan, both at the beginning of their career. Nobody had heard, in America, nobody had heard of Isadora Duncan. She'd gone to France because they were a little bit further ahead uh, in terms of modern dance. So that was pretty extraordinary, and the letters are fantastic. And she was dazzled by both of them. Very different, of course, very different styles. But she, it ha, she did not understand avant-garde painting, which is of course also bursting onto the scene. And she went to the, her first Matisse exhibition and she wrote home, and it was after they had gone to the Louvre. This is to her sister Millie. The contrast after the Louvre was too much. All the most startling colors with bizarre subjects and the drawing was like that of a little child. So she later laughed about this, and she said, "You know, we were we had such conventional taste. If we had bought one of those small impressionist paintings, we would have made a fortune. But they didn't. They didn't know enough. So instead, they spent all their money on beautiful handmade Parisian gowns and matching dyed silk slippers and the rest. So they really were. This is who they were. They were society girls and." In 1911, they returned to Auburn, still having not found anybody. Rosamond uh, uh, accrued a number of suitors everywhere she went. She was tall and willowy and incredibly beautiful, but my grandmother just dismissed them all. None of them were good enough for Roz. Roz. And so they returned to Auburn, and they took up automobiling, which was just coming into into style. Dorothy's parents had just bought their first machine, as they were called. And uh, here's a picture of South Street a little bit later on, but just so you get a sense of the beautiful trees and the early automobiles. And they resumed their canoeing on Owasco Lake and their formal 10-course luncheons, which were apparently a regular occurrence. And my grandmother said to my brothers and me, I don't know why we weren't all big as houses. Um, So the years were going by and their parents were getting increasingly impatient for them to get married. But they just couldn't find a man who measured up And one of the things they kept in mind was a question that the president of Smith had asked students frequently, which was, are you a leaner or a lifter? And I just loved that. And that clearly stuck with them. And they knew they didn't want to be leaners. But in Auburn, there wasn't much for women to do in the way of lifting. Meanwhile, they were engaged in all kinds of suffrage work, but it really, they, they were just sort of dabbling, and their parents thought it was a joke, literally, and they so they knew it. Well, that wasn't going to do much for them. And so my, my, my grandmother said, well, we were in this troubled state when an unusual opportunity presented itself. Roz had invited an acquaintance for tea, and they began, she and this, this young woman, began talking about how few working opportunities there were for young women of their, their class and this, her guest was a Wellesley graduate. So this was the female kind of college networking uh, network uh, networking group. Uh, and this young woman had just gotten back from Northwestern Colorado, where she was visiting a friend, and she had met the, a graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School, whose name was Ferry Carpenter. So Carpenter had literally brought the law to Route County. He was the first lawyer in Hayden, this little town of 400 people. And he was homesteading in the Elkhead Mountains to the north. He he knew just from an early age, when he was a teenager, that he wanted to be a rancher. That was his dream. And he wanted to play a role in the settling up of the West. So Roz's guest who had met him described him as visionary. She was clearly struck by him. And she said that Carpenter and his friends had just finished, his neighbors up in the mountains, had just finished building a school for the children of the settlers. And he was looking for two college-educated women school teachers from the East. Well, Roz heard this and she thought, "Okay, this is it," and she ran out to call Dottie, as she called my grandmother, and she asked her, "How would you like to go out to Colorado and teach school? You must come over immediately. We must discuss this." So Dorothy, you know, who lived around the corner, ran over, and on the way over, she thought, "Yes, this is it. This is what we're going to do." She loved the idea, and they basically just applied without giving it any more thought. I guess they probably figured they wouldn't get hired because they weren't—they they, didn't—they didn't know anything about teaching. But they were, they were hired. And then, my grandmother said, it began to frighten us very much. Now this is what she looks like in uh, 1916. As you can see, a little, this is probably right before they left, a little, a little naive looking. We realized what we'd done, we knew not the slightest thing about teaching, absolutely nothing. There's the telegram from Ferry Carpenter. Their parents thought they were gonna be attacked by Indians or devoured by wild animals. This was, you know, it was like them going to the moon. It was just inconceivable. And the blue bloods of Auburn were just horrified. As Dorothy told told me, no young lady in our town had ever been hired by anybody. And then the, the Syracuse newspaper reported in big capital letters, society girls go to wilds of Colorado, forsaking their beautiful homes for the life of a school teacher The Mrs. Rosamond Underwood and Dorothy Woodruff leading society girls left for Hayden. The announcement of the departure for the lonely place in the heart of the Elkhead Mountains, 18 miles from a railroad station, surprised society when it became known today. So Ferry Carpenter is the hero of my book. Actually, he's, he's my hero in many ways now that I know him so well. A remarkable, remarkable person. In his freshman year at Princeton, which was the same year that Dorothy and Roz went off to Smith, He got to know the president of the university, who was Woodrow Wilson. And he became his student liaison in Wilson's effort to reform the exclusive eating clubs. And again, this was a very dramatic thing for the president of this university to do. And Carpenter loved this idea and they worked very hard at it. And and so they became quite friendly. And Wilson told him one night after returning from a lecture about Abraham Lincoln at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I just love this quote, and I assume that Carpenter got it right, that this is essentially what Wilson told him. At those great state institutions, the gates are flung wide open. The wind of public opinion sweeps unobstructed through them. But here at a proprietary institution, we are surrounded by a great high wall, which admits little from the outside world. Wilson particularly loved the West, and in 1889, here's our second uh, uh, Baltimore connection, when he was a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins, he'd gotten to know a graduate student there who lived in the same boarding house, and it was Frederick Jackson Turner. They, so they would have constant conversations about, about the role of the West in American history and about democracy, which helped, and so Wilson essentially helped Turner develop his famous frontier thesis, which he delivered in a speech at the University of Chicago four years later. So Ferry Carpenter often talked with Wilson about all of this, and it just got him more and more excited about going to the West. And this, again, this is something he had decided when he was 15 years old, but now he was re- he idolized Wilson, and this is something that he was determined to do. And he too came to believe that, that American democracy was born on the frontier. So every summer, he would go out to Hayden, Colorado, which he, he would have to, it was an endless journey. He'd have to take the train, and then the last leg of the trip, he took a, a, a stagecoach. And um, on the day he turned 21, when Roz and Dorothy were swanning around Europe, he staked his homestead claim in the Elkhead Mountains, and he said it was the proudest day of his life. And then a year after he graduated from Princeton, he was out there, he established, uh, he, he was beginning to get himself established as a as a homesteader, and he came up with this idea for a school, for the children of the homesteaders. And he decided it was gonna be the best school in Route County, which is an enormous area, it's the size of Massachusetts. And he was really sincere about this, he was a complete romantic idealist, and he, he really wanted to give these kids a good education, which they wouldn't have at all otherwise, but as I found out, he also had an ulterior motive. And I'd wondered why did he go thousands of miles out of his way to hire these two women who didn't had no clue what they were doing? And part of the, the really fun part about doing this book was juxtaposing Dorothy's version of the story with fairies. And I, I found early on, after I found my grandmother's letters in a, in a desk drawer, which was a great moment, I, I went online and I saw that Fairy had written an autobiography called Confessions of a Maverick. And so of course I bought it, and it was just fabulous. It told a whole part of the story that my grandmother had never told. And he also left behind, he became a big figure in Colorado history, and he left behind many speeches and interviews. And so in the Denver Public Library, you can go and listen to his voice, which is just really a fun thing to do. And he was a really free, unlike my grandmother, who was a wonderful storyteller, but was very accurate, you know, down to the letter. He, was, he had the Western style. He was freewheeling and cracking jokes and stuff. You know, he would tell the same story over and over again, but was constantly embellishing it. And one of his favorite stories was about hiring these two idealistic Smith graduates. And so, in short, it would go that, and truthfully, so, that there were no single women in Elkhead, none. I mean, this is a community of, of 26 people. Uh, and he admitted that he and the other cowboys were, had conspired to get some pretty girls out there. And so in one of the versions, he told the Saturday Evening Post, we had serious matrimonial intentions. And they did. But, of course, when he wrote to Miss Woodruff and Miss Underwood, he, he took on a whole different persona, and he was the, you know, upright young lawyer, and he emphasized the adventure of seeing some of the last of the unfenced west and the opportunity to teach, and he wrote, I truly envy you the chance to be with those kids as everything to them is a seven-day wonder. So they, Jonathan and Ross were excited, terrified. Um, they read up, they did everything they could to prepare. And they rode the train from Auburn to Chicago where they spent the night with an uncle of Rosamond's. And the next day, at Ferry's advice, he had written them a letter before they left and he said, I think it would be a good idea for you to buy a rifle before you come out because it's hunting season out here. So they just took, and I think he was joking, but they took him very seriously and they went downtown and Ross's uncle took them to a store to buy a .22 and 1,000 rounds of shot. And my grandmother, who was, as I say, tiny, she was 4 feet 11, and she weighed under 100 pounds at the time, um, she wrote to her mother that everyone laughed when she tried to pick up the rifle. She said, I could hardly lift the thing. Imagine what I'll be an elkhead. So later they made um, a really sweltering, there was a, a countrywide, heat wave uh, going on and they made a sweltering three-day journey across the Great Plains to Denver and stayed at a very nice hotel and that night they were invited to dinner at the home of another Underwood relative and really in 50 years denver had transformed itself from a dusty mining camp with you know indians on one side and, and the miners the prospectors on the other into a, a a beautiful modern city it had a tramway system coca-cola billboards its own wall street this was it was a very sophisticated place and a high society they discovered was just the way it was in auburn there was another uh, guest there that night an older woman who told them no Denver girl would go up into that place. It will be terribly hard. And people describe the Western Slope accurately and simply as the wild country. It was just, you know, almost uninhabited still. But, but years later Ross recalled, and this is another great moment um, when you're doing you know nonfiction research you just have these great discoveries along the way and I n- nobody in her fan Ross's family knew there was any oral history and I ended up tracking one down in a little tiny museum in Steamboat Springs and I it was on put, put, had been put on a CD and I put it into the computer. And I, and on came Rosamond's voice sounding very much like my grandmother's as an older woman. And she said of this moment when they were about to go over the Continental Divide, we were nothing daunted and spent the night in grandeur at the Brown Palace Hotel, the hottest night I ever spent in my life. They were really great adventurers, the two of them. And uh, the next morning they took a four car train. I mean, if you could see the size of this thing, it was really small over the continental divide on the three-year-old Denver Northwestern and Pacific Railway. And this was a railway that had aspirations to be another transcontinental railroad. I mean, people thought really big in those days. And David Moffat, the man who, who, who subsidized it, really believed that this was going to happen. So my grandmother wrote home that the railroad, as she put it, seems to be something of a joke with its one train and delays. It was only three years old. But long before we arrived, I thought it was the most gigantic accomplishment I ever saw We went through and over sheer rocks, high mountains, and superb canyons, and I can't imagine how they ever did it. And it was described in newspapers around the world. People were mesmerized. As far far east as Russia, people were mesmerized by the American West. So newspapers uh, uh, in Europe described it as one of the great engineering marvels of the age. Okay, and let's just take a look. So that's um, by Gore Canyon and it gives you a, l- a little sense of it. I mean, it, it's, I've done part of this journey on Amtrak and even today it's pretty incredible. And there they are one day in front of the train after it had derailed outside Steamboat Springs and they had to wait for a rescue train to come, which arrived 24 hours later. So after reading about my grandmother's description of this train journey, I you know, I thought, well, I wonder how they did build this thing. And so I read up on it, and it was just an amazing story in itself, so I incorporated that into the book, too. And I decided, well, I want to really retrace her steps as much as I can. So I took this Amtrak from Denver along the original route as far as I could. You have to get off it when you go over. You, you, you go through a tunnel now, and uh, you get off at Winter Park, and then I went back to go up the rest of the part, which was then, which was the rutted dirt bed of the abandoned leg of the railroad, and that was how I got to the top of the Continental Divide. And it t- I had to go three miles an hour. It was such a uh, hard, and it was just you know incredibly bumpy, and there were trees over the road, and it was it's a little scary. I have to say, all by myself with no, not no four wheel drive. And here's a photograph that I took of um, one of the stretches that again just gives you a sense of what <laughs> what it must have been like to be on that little little delicate railroad, really. So she wrote about, Dorothy wrote about this little rail stop at the top of the, at the summit called Corona, where the train left, there was a little, uh, sort of a shack, which was the where they had their lunch, and the train let the passengers off, and, but of course by the time I got there, there, was it was just totally desolate, nothing was left, except some old rotting railroad ties and rusty tin cans I found as I was kind of scrounging around, and I realized that those were meals eaten by the railroad workers when they had worked through two brutal winters to get this railroad built. Uh, and that's what it looks like today. And I, one of the facts I read that I, I thought was amazing was when the men suffered from snow blindness because they didn't have sunglasses, they would rub their eyelids at night with slices of raw potatoes. And some of them had uh, snowshoes and some of them didn't. And this, would, the drifts were, you know, huge. It, it just remarkable feet. Very brave and very foolhardy thing to do. Dorothy and Roz, however, had the advantage of taking the train, and they arrived in Hayden uh, 12 hours after they set out at 10.30 p.m. And the electricity had been turned off for the night, as it was every night, and they were afraid to step outside. It was pitch black, and they just sat there, and there was this dim light in the parlor car, and uh, suddenly the, the door of the parlor car opened, and this deep voice boomed out, are you Miss Woodruff and Miss Underwood? And it was Ferry Carpenter, and uh, who turned out to be, to Roz's surprise, they had thought of him as a kind of, you know, established lawyer, and she said he was a tall, gangly youth, and they realized he was no older than they were. And there he is, the tall, gangly youth, Ferry Carpenter. And they liked him immediately. As he helped them down the steep steps of the train, they saw that the Hayden Depot was, in fact, an old boxcar. No station had been built yet because the railroad was so new. And uh, Ferry described that the night in his autobiography, as dark as the inside of a cow, he quickly took on the intonations of the way, you know he had this western drawl, even though he came from Evanston, Illinois, he had totally become, you know this this um, cowboy. The next day they got a look at better look at Hayden, which, looked pretty much like that. And the mountains in the back, those very bare, rugged hills are uh, the Elkhead Mountains. So, but before they got up there Dorothy wrote that it was a funny Hayden, about Hayden, that it was a funny straggly place and its residents snappy and entertaining. Their good manners are as surprising as the kind of English they speak. One man could barely be restrained, she said, from showing us a bottle of gallstones just removed from his wife. And then she closed by saying, we are thrilled, in capital letters, by everything. Carpenter um, had really done everything he could to make them feel at home. And he had found them two horses and a place to live in the mountains at the homestead of Uriah and Mary Harrison. It was 15 miles north of Hayden in those bare hills. uh, And it was several miles from the school. And there are the Harrisons in front of their newly built house. They were typical homesteaders who had come to Colorado from Missouri by train and then covered wagon in the 1890s to claim their 160 acres of land, just pretty much as Ferry Carpenter did his uh, under the Homestead Act, which this year is um, celebrating its 150th anniversary. They had just moved into their new house in Elkhead, and my grandmother described the front step as a soapbox and the rooms still divided by blankets and rugs. And she commented in, uh, in one of her letters, this lends intimacy to an unimagined degree, and you know it any time anyone turns over in bed. And it is especially sociable when the wind blows. She and Roz shared a narrow iron bed, and Roz said that the room was so small, if one of them fell out at night, she'd roll right down the stairs. And that's pretty much the room right there. There was no electricity, no bathroom, of course, no telephone, and the heat, the only heat was provided by the coal-fueled stove in the kitchen. And before dawn, every morning, this wonderful woman, Mrs. Harrison, would come up with hot water for their sponge baths, and she'd pound on the floor, calling out, it's time, girls, Usually it was so cold, They and I remember this detail vividly from the stories that my grandmother told, we made her repeatedly tell us these wonderful stories when we were little, and she said that it was so cold they'd have to pour the hot water into the pitcher on their bureau to crack the ice so that they could uh, wash. So here's Dorothy looking a little different than she did in uh, Auburn and out in uh, in Europe, wearing, it looks like one of Mrs. Uh, Harrison's aprons when she was doing her Saturday chores, burning the paper as she had written on the back of the photograph. Uh, from her waste basket. So Dorothy and Roz adored Mrs. Harrison. This was their idea of a a great, strong, pioneer woman, and she truly was. Dorothy described her as tiny and skinny and wrinkled, with her thin gray hair slicked back and with the most astonishing set of false teeth. She had a twinkle in her kindly blue eyes and the most delicious, keen humor, she wrote, Our meals are always hilarious. We so mutually amuse each other. Imagine these two cultures coming together and what they had to teach each other. It must have been, those conversations must have been really something. Um, One of her sons was 14-year-old Louis, who was really tiny for his age. Um, And I later found out that he was desperately, he was very nearsighted and he really needed glasses. But nevertheless, he was their guide to school each morning. And a few days before classes began, of course they wanted to see the school where they were gonna be teaching. So he took them to see it. And it was an hour's ride up and down these huge, high, bare gullies and hills. And Roz, who had traveled to Greece with her parents, looked up from about a mile away. You can see it, and it's still up there, and I've seen it. She looked up and she said, it's the Parthenon of Elkhead, (laughs) which is kind of great. And there it is, the Parthenon of Elkhead. So Dorothy was unsure about her skills in math and Latin so she and, and Rosa decided before they left home that Raza would take the older children and my grandmother would take the younger ones and she my grandmother thought well this can't be that hard they're just little little children you know how, how tough can that be and the room was divided uh, it was huge it is a huge room with these big windows divided by a big folding wooden door and she loved to write about her students and um, who were all boys, as it turns out, except for one girl. And they were very rowdy kids. So she discovered on the first day that the children, many of them had never been to school before at all, and they were aged from about 6 to 13. One of them didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance, and one of the little boys referred to the American flag as Old Gory, and another thought that Ferry Carpenter was the President of the United States. That's how, how narrow their horizons were. So there they are, the two teachers, and you can see the mischievous little boys with their scrunched up faces, and um, they, were, they were a handful. So, but Roz, um, here, we'll just show her class. She got all the girls, this, this you know, very studious older girls, and the, the academic standards were high, Ferry Carpenter had seen to this. So Roz taught ancient history, history of the US, English, algebra, Latin, and geography. That was pretty, pretty demanding. And Oh, also they taught domestic science, and this became sort of a, story, a joke in their letters. Um, and even before they left, because they'd been warned that they were going to have to do this, and it was kind of an early version of home ec. But it terrified them, because at home, they weren't even allowed into the kitchen. That was the cook's territory. And all of, of course, all their dresses and hats were handmade. Uh, So the first weekend in Alcott, they wanted to prove themselves to Mrs. Harrison, and they tried to wash their silk shirts. They walked to the Sulphur Spring, which was a quarter mile away for water, and they brought it back in a bucket and heated it on the stove. And then Dorothy wrote, we spent all of yesterday PM doing them. And Mrs. Harrison went into hysterics at our efforts. How are we going to teach domestic science? And I sort of suspect in the end, the girls taught the teachers domestic science because the, these girls were extremely competent. So Dorothy had all these rambunctious boys in her, in her classroom. There they are with, the, with little Minnie Jones with a bow in her hair. And uh, so their, her letters are full of stories of the boys misbehaving, and sometimes her in absolute despair not knowing what to do about them. Um, so just one quick story. Early in the school year, she had her back turned one day as she was mending a chart, and uh, her adhesive plaster disappeared from the table, and she asked who had done it, and the boys all swore that they hadn't seen it. But then the next day, 10-year-old Rudolph, and he becomes a character in the book because she writes about him so often, he, he returned it to her and he said that he had found it behind the barn. So Dorothy, you know, she, she, she tried to be strict and she told them that no one could go out for recess until the guilty one confessed. And there was a long silence and then finally, six year old Robin Robinson spoke up <clears throat> and he said, I did it. So Dorothy told, wrote to her family, I tried to talk to him seriously but his great brown eyes fairly danced and he has a thatch of light hair which stands on end. And he's so irresistible in his rags and dirt. So when she asked him why he hadn't told her before, he said, I didn't think I did it until today. <laughs> so there are the boys uh, on their skis. They The boys love to go out at lunchtime and, and ski. There was a big hill in front of the schoolhouse. And they love to do that. And they taught the teachers how to ski. And that was a source of great hilarity for them, since the teachers are so bad at it. Uh, and then a couple of the girls. And as you can see, they didn't exactly have warm winter clothes. And, and Roz and Dorothy realized I mean, it didn't take them that long, because in September it started snowing. And they suddenly realized that they, well, it wasn't so picturesque. They, the, these families were terribly, terribly poor. They visited one family of seven who lived in a tiny cabin far away. Most of the settlers lived about four miles away from each other, and this one was very far away. And Dorothy wrote, I was positively terrified by the mother's appearance. She is tall and gaunt with a wisp of bright red hair and two horrible tusks of teeth. I felt so sorry for for the poor creature. What can life mean but mere existence to people like that? The children are neat and clean at school, and no wonder they love it. So they immediately, Dorothy and Roz immediately wrote to their parents and families to see if they could help out, and pretty soon barrels of clothing started arriving in Hayden, and then they were taken up to the top of the mountain so from their churches and relatives. Everybody banded together, and they really saw these two women as, as missionaries in the wilderness. This is one of the families. This was um, a family of 11, and they visited them too, and they had, they, it, was, it was two rooms, their, their little cabin. So all of this was incredible raw material, just really wonderful. Uh, I was so lucky to have it all. But a good western needs romance and violence, of course. And luckily, I came to have those too. Ferry, you know, as you know, he had he he had ideas about the the romancing, and many of the cowboys really did try to woo them, and and some of it was quite comical including one dandy named Everett Adair, who again becomes quite a character in the course of the book because they write about him all the time. And he just constantly was hounding them. And one day he showed up at the Harrison Ranch on Sunday, which was their their one day that they didn't work and prepare for class, and he was leading two horses. And he asked them to go riding with him. So they went inside, they weren't quite sure about him. He was, as my daughters would say, he was a little sketchy. And uh, they went inside to consult with Mrs. Harrison, and Everett poked his head in to say, they will be just as safe as though they were in the arms of Jesus. Um, but Fairy Carpenter was different. I mean, this, this, he was one of a kind. In any case, he was certainly different up there. He, everyone in the community respected him enormously. He was such a, you know, force and such a huge personality, and so funny and so brilliant in so many ways. And they were. Dorothy and Waz were really impressed with him. He, his energy, his intelligence, his ingenuity. And Dorothy wrote to her parents early on. He has a gentle, kindly manner with keen eyes, a fine sense of humor, and a regular live wire along every line. And he kept all of his books, he was a huge reader and just very eclectic. Um, And he kept all of his books in his law office, which was a former one-lane bowling alley. And Dorothy said, his library was perfectly amazing. Let's just take a look. There it is. Uh, It showed such broad, up-to-date interests, and we are certainly going to have to work night and day to keep up our end. And so she didn't want to confirm her mother's preconceptions about the the uh, kind of crude West. So she didn't, you know, she didn't. Needless to say, she didn't mention the electrical wire. You can't really see it too well in this photograph, but it was hanging from the ceiling to his uh, to his light. And then he has those hideous floral curtains. She just kind of kept certain things out of the letters. They they wanted to send these very buoyant letters home, so their parents could only imagine the best of what was going on. But the girls also liked, as they called themselves, the girls, 29 years old, they also liked his uh, uh, fairy's best friend, who was very handsome, and named, a man named Bob Perry, who was a Columbia graduate, so also very good credentials, and the manager of his father's coal mine in Oak Creek. And there he is, as you can see, quite dashing in front of his cabin, which did have electricity, by the way, and uh, various other amenities. And there he is, posing on horseback. So Roz wrote affectionately about the way Fairy dressed. Dot and I, and this is Bob, who is much more dapper. Uh, she wrote, "Dot, and remember, they think a lot about clothes, the clothes of these women, even at this point. Dot nine nearly expire over his costumes: blue overalls, blue cotton shirts open at the neck, and old rubber boots. Mister Perry, on the contrary, wears a very nice-looking riding top and tends toward the immaculate." So the two women. Still didn't know anything about Carpenter's matchmaking scheme, but they did notice that both of these men were paying a lot of attention to Roz. And Bob, who lived in Oak Creek, which was 60 miles away from the, the Harrison Ranch, had to come a long way to see them, and he came just about every single weekend, unless the weather was absolutely impossible. My grandmother, meanwhile, this is a whole different story, but she had gotten engaged in Chicago on their way out. And Ferry was the first, and she kept it a secret from everybody, including her parents, because she knew her parents wouldn't let her go. And Ferry was the first person to discover it, and he was just crushed that half of his scheme had been thwarted, because he, he, one of his tasks was to take all of the elkhead people's mail up from Hayden. And so he noticed that Dorothy was getting a letter almost every single day from Grand Rapids in mail handwriting, so he knew that was it for her. But Ross was considered a real catch. And the Harrison, so these two men came together courting the same woman, but they were very gentlemanly about it. And the Harrison's older son, who was 19, he watched all of this with great interest. And he later said, uh, described Ferry and Bob as two young fellows with their tail feathers blooming, which is a great description. So the only place that Dorothy and Ross had any privacy was on horseback. And so that was when they would discuss the merits of the two suitors. Ferry was the witty intellectual risk-taker and Bob was the dapper, generous, um, hard-working young man who was going to, not incidentally, inherit his father's business and much of his fortune. And Sam Perry was one of the biggest industrialists in Denver, he was a, a really important man in the city. So everything was going just great. It was They were having a blast, as Ferry Carpenter's granddaughter put it to me. And it was the middle of the fall, and they were settling into their routines. And then one day, Bob Perry was kidnapped at gunpoint by two Greek miners outside his cabin late at night, and he was held in 15, for, uh, for $15,000 in gold coin, which is about... Three hundred thousand dollars today. I mean, it was the whole thing. They had, you know, um, the, the handkerchiefs across their faces. They had the rifles, the guns. Uh, he didn't take it terribly seriously at the beginning, but this went on for days and days. And it, it, it was not. It, it was a tough thing. So, here's later. I found out that they. This had become uh, news across the country. This is the front page of um, the L.A. Tribune, and there was a reward poster was posted all over the area. Um, so he the, he may he and Bob ends up making this unbelievably heroic escape. He shoots one of the kidnappers. That's a whole story, which you'll have to read in the book. But afterward, Dorothy and Roz wrote. They knew that their parents would hear about this, because it was being reported all over the, the, the country. And they tried to reassure their parents that Oak Creek, as they put it, was a rough kind of place, nothing like folksy Hayden or sparsely populated Elkhead, which was very safe. It it really was rough and Bob and, and Ferry really didn't tell them half of what went on there and, and I went back to, to the little tiny museum that's in the old town hall there, and this is a very, this town is almost, has almost disappeared off the map, um, but there basically one man has been keeping the history for generations, and so you can read the old newspaper clips, and even when they were there, there were stories of you know, horrendous uh, accidents in the mines and incidents in the saloons and brothels and drunken brawls and, oh, and rapes. I mean, it was really, really bad. So, but they again, these were these sheltered women, and people didn't know, want them to know too much. But up in Elkhead, it wasn't all that easy either. It turned out to be the worst winter in anyone's memory, with blizzards virtually every day, and the t- temperature sometimes plunging to fi- uh, forty degrees below zero. And at night, and this is one of the details I also remembered, the snow would blow through the cracks in the harris and the log between the logs, and just settle on the on the girl's bed in the morning. And there, it was so cold it would didn't melt. Uh, and Lewis Harrison, the little 14-year-old, got up at dark, in the dark every morning and broke the trail all the way to the school. It was just unbelievable, two and a half miles away. And the teachers were well-prepared. They had come with these gigantic trunks, and they had their fur coats and German woolen socks and tights and sweaters and scarves, and they just layered on their clothes, and they never were cold. Were everything you should see. You know, you'll see in one of the slides, they're completely bundled. Let's see if it, you can actually see it. Oh, you can't because it's too far away. You can see that's my grandmother. You can see her scarf and her hat. Um, and there's, there's Dorothy and Lewis on the trail. Roz must have taken that picture because that's her horse. But the children, meanwhile, had no winter coats except whatever had been sent from, from uh, Auburn and you know, no boots. And they walked or skied on old barrel staves. And in some places, the drifts were up to their necks. And they, you know, they were walking three miles each way. And the younger, my grandmother described the younger children coming in. And sometimes they would get there first. And the children would get the fire going and the basement stove, the coal fire. And they would just stand around the, the stove crying until their hands and feet warmed, warmed up. Some of them had nothing more than cold potatoes for lunch. So Dorothy and Roz did quickly learn some of the basics, and they began making hot soup on the basement stove. And I later learned, one of the, uh, one of the uh, students later said that, that the hot soup at lunch was one of his the great memories of his youth. So I had sensed, even before beginning the book, that Dorothy's year in Colorado had influenced her as much as all of her 29 years in Auburn. And she was this funny mix of Victorian rectitude and just, you know, kind of spirited uh, feminism, early, you know, um, way before my my era of feminism. Uh, and it, so it was this un- unusual mix. And I so sort of wanted, that was one of the things I wanted to find out about. But I also, and I did find out in the course of doing it, but I also wanted to find out about what effect the two teachers had had on their students. So I, tra- I did track down as many of the descendants as I could. And to, to my amazement, the children had recalled those nine months as, vis- as vividly in Ra- as Ross and Dorothy had and handed the story down through generations in their families, just as Roz and Dorothy had handed down their stories. And in the 1970s, a former student of Roz's, Leela Ferguson, who had become an award-winning teacher in Colorado, told one of Ferry's granddaughters, Belle Zars, um, what they didn't know about teaching methods they made up in zeal, and which I thought was just a great description from a, who, someone who by then was a really very good, very good teacher. And Lewis Harris in their wonderful fearless trail guide talked about Miss Woodruff and Miss Underwood and as he put it, you know, came riding into our lives in a spring wagon late one afternoon. Little did I realize at the time the important and lasting influence it was going to have, not only on me, but on most youths and many adults of the Elkhead community. And Lewis went on to college and then graduate school and this was a time when only 10% of kids all across the country even graduated from high school. So the idea that this happened in this tiny rural school in the middle of nowhere is just kind of stunning and is a great tribute to, to Ferry Carpenter and to these amazing pioneers and their the value they placed in education. So anyway, Lewis, he not only did he go to college, he went to graduate school, and in 1957 he became the chief forester for the state of Missouri. So that you know that is an American success story. And I found his daughter after much looking around um, in Grand Rapids, and his grandson Richard in Atlanta. And, grand, and his his grandson is roughly uh, my contemporary, and so his name is Richard. And he told me that he described the photograph that hangs in his front hall, and he said, "Well, it was my it was my grandfather when he was a boy, and he was on this large white horse." And uh, he started describing it, and I knew the photograph because it was in my grandmother's photo album and in Roz's photo album. So I think Roz, who was the great photographer, probably took it and then gave a copy to Lewis. And there, so there it is. And it, you know, there are copies of it now in Colorado, Atlanta, and now in Pelham in my house. Uh, So in the 1920s, you know, the the book is not all, you know, fun and adventure, that's for sure. In in, uh, the 1920s, the homesteaders began to drift away. They just couldn't make a living in that harsh climate. And actually, one of the uh, descendants told me that he thought and his parents thought that the whole homesteading idea was kind of a ripoff. That was the way he described it, because... Th- this land that was just basically most of it was not arable and there wasn't enough water. And it just, it all just, after World War I, everyone began just to to leave and look for better climates. So the, the there are only the remains of a couple of the homesteads, you know, which are falling down. Most of the would have been carted off to used for other things. But the Elkhead School is still standing and it is still a very impressive building. It's made out of this beautiful, sturdy mountain stone Known as Rimrock, which is a formation that can be found up there, uh, you know, right right behind the school. And as Ferry put it, he was describing it to his granddaughter and he said, Well, you didn't want to build a little shack up there. He, he wanted a legacy, and this was his legacy. And, you know, here we are talking about it today. So I first, uh, when I started, once I started working on the book, I wanted to go up in in the winter time to see what it was like up there um, and to get a sense of what they lived through. And I went in February 2008 and so I asked naively, well, could I, can I ride horses kind of the way they did, roughly from where the, the homestead was, the, the Harrison homestead was, to the schoolhouse. Well, no, of course not, because there's nobody, there's nobody there anymore. There's nobody to break trail. There are no horses. And uh, so, but some, some of the uh, people in Hayden arranged for a group of us to take a snow, several snowmobiles up. And um, we were guided by the grandson of one of the Elkhead students, wonderful guy who helps run the town of Hayden and loaned us these these snowmobiles so it was a long bumpy ride up and we, you know one of the snowmobiles tipped over and we had to rescue her and it was just very similar to the kinds of experiences my my grandmother and Roz had when they were out with ferry um although they were in sleighs at the time and so we finally got there and again from the fr- far i could see the schoolhouse and just see how stunning it was and we finally got up there and the school really looked exactly the way it had in the pictures that my grandmother and Roz had taken just about a century earlier except those of course now look kind of they kind of sepia tone and they're grainy and faded with age um, but this is what I saw beautiful beautiful winter day not a cloud in the sky and I got up there and I suddenly saw this school through the eyes of the children and Roz and Dorothy and Fairy and all their parents and you know through sort of this crazy dream that they all had and just that morning in Hayden there's a wonderful little museum in Hayden And I had found the yearbook that some of Roz's students, there were five graduates um, in 1920, and Roz went back for the graduation of her students, um, the ninth graders who were graduating as 12th graders. And they put together a, a construction paper yearbook, and they had written in it that they felt as they looked off at the blue and purple mountains of the Rockies as if they were standing on top of the world. And I just thought, that's it. Thank you so much. And um, if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to answer any. Yes in the back. When
0: they were uh, in Europe, um, did they say anything in the letters about uh, World War I?
1: Well, they, Europe was earlier. That was 1910. So not then, but when they were in Elkhead, they, they yes, they did. It was there, and it, the the community was very divided. And you know, were were the, were they going to be for Woodrow Wilson, who was running for a second term, or or the Supreme Court justice whose name is now escaping me? Someone may remember. Uh, so, and there were there were very um, sort of are uh, big arguments. Bob was a Republican, and At that point, Ferry, was. although he later became a Republican, he was just an ardent supporter of Woodrow Wilson to his death, I mean, he just loved this man, and he talked about what a visionary he was and what a great president he had been and would continue to be. So they um, saw over there, uh, what's then? There was no talk of the Kaiser, like while they were a little bit, but w- they were so isolated, and I think that they didn't. They were only hearing. They heard about the election results, you know. So, and of course, what the, the decision about whether to enter World War One was a huge issue in the election. But they were hearing everything days and days afterward because newspapers took so long to get there. But Ferry was always the first one to have the news, and he would tell them, you know, how the how, how the election was going. And then Ferry went off to fight in the war, and others others did in the community. Um, and they 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 ended up uh, the community ended up supporting America's entry into the war just to a person. Yes, here. Um, I have one comment, and then I'm wondering if you could go back to that picture of your grandmother with her siblings, because I wanted to ask about Anna, who I understand was her older sister. Yes, boy, you're a good reader. Well, I, I read the book. I, my sister gave it to me from prison. Um, but what I was curious about is how she came to go to because you <laughs> mentioned that it was so unusual, and yet... Well, that is a really great question. No one has asked me that exactly. And I should, both my mother and my aunt are still alive. Wait, let's get back to this shot. Uh, You wanted the one in in there. Yes, hold on. We'll look at Anna. Um, Here we are. So Anna, Anna is the one up there on your left the oldest. She was the oldest in the family, and she had a long, thick braid down her back. I think, my, I susp- I think the answer to the question is that their mother who was a huge reader and believed in education. Of course, all of the men in the family went to the best schools, and I think that she thought that this was a great institution and that she hadn't had the opportunity to go to to college, and she wanted her girls to have that. So as you remember, my grandmother wrote, I mean, I think I put this in the book, it wasn't cut out, that when Anna came home, the first time she came home, probably for Thanksgiving, it was a huge event in the family, and everyone stayed up for her. She came by train, and they all had sandwiches and they listened to what it was like. Um, so, it, and Smith in those days really was, you know, one of the one of the great great institutions for for women. Still and, it is. Um, and still is, yeah. One comment for you. Um, I think that David Moffat was responsible for the Chesapeake Bay or Chesapeake Beach Railroad, which went from Chesapeake Beach on the western shore to <coughs> South Annapolis in Washington because as I was reading, there was a Colorado connection and whoever the railroad magnet was spent all this money trying to well, that's fascinating. That I hadn't come across, and I have one of my um, good Colorado friends is an expert on David Moffat, and he does reenactments and everything. And I don't—I've never heard. I thought all of his uh, work was uh, centered in Colorado and in the West. But yeah, yeah there, was, there was some Colorado connection, and, and I meant to look it up before I came so I apologize. I will well f- f- interestingly I just got a letter from someone who told me that I had it wrong in the book that he did well it was always unclear how he died he, this is the man who built the railroad and he spent his fortune his and he in his until he was in his 60s trying to get this the railroad you know built across the country and he failed he spent millions and millions of dollars on it and the the story is that he died in a hotel room of a broken heart in New York after a fundraising trip that he almost and almost secured the funding and Harriman's people had thwarted him. And there had been an ongoing battle with Harriman throughout all of this. And this letter I got from this man who um, who had gone to a, a, a museum in Denver said that actually he had heard that Moffat killed himself. So anyway, it's all great. whatever. Steve.
0: I'm struck by how many photographs Roz took, going through the Maryland interest, which is unusual in 1916, to have a camera at all, and to have film, uh, and to have
1: is there anything to go about that? Well, Roz, I understand from her descendants that she was fascinated by photography and she loved, she loved taking pictures. And I didn't include her. There's a picture of her. I think it's in the book of her looking into her camera she's taking a picture of Bob uh, and thank God they took these pictures but you can see they were taking pictures in 1910 on their trip in Europe too so I, I th- it was a very early uh, development but they were this was the Progressive era and they were really everybody was really interested in all these new inventions and actually motion pictures, Where the first motion picture was invented in Auburn. It was just this unbelievable city where everything was happening. So it may be that part of the interest in photography had come from this man in Auburn, whose name I've forgotten, who invented the motion picture. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, right here. I if you to speak to finding the letter you mentioned twice. Oh yeah, I write about that in the in the prologue. Well, it's it sort of embarrassing because it, although thank goodness I had this hideous pratfall, I was running down the stairs one day in my house. I, I was late to the uh, taking a friend to the train. I was getting the, my dog's leash, and I went into the kitchen, and I turned a corner too quickly and I fell down broke my ankle. Had to have surgery and I was laid up for two weeks. There was an ice bag on my foot and I was clearing out my desk drawer one day and way in the back, there was, I just found this folder which my mother had given me 20 years earlier and it said Dorothy Woodruff letters, 1916, 17. So I, I thought, hmm, I don't think I, I remembered all the stories but for some reason I had never read the letters which I can't quite believe and I opened it up and I started reading the first letter and I just thought, wow, this. I could hear her voice even though she's only 29 And I thought, this is my grandmother. I mean, I just remember this so well. And I hobbled over to my chair and I just sat down. I read them all. And it was like, it felt like reading a novel. She was, and I thought, she was such a great writer and she never knew it. So she, what I knew was that she was this great storyteller. And and that was, that impression was confirmed, you know, halfway through my research when my aunt happened upon the letters she wrote from Europe, which were earlier. She was only 22, and those letters are so fantastic. So uh, my mother had given the Elkhead letters to Smith, the Sophia Smith collection at Smith, and now I've given the letter, the, the Ur- Europe letters, to the same collection, which is a wonderful repository of women's writing. So they're all there if anybody's ever interested in looking. at Just wonderful little details about what life was like in certain <clears throat> realms of society in, uh, in those days. Well, so it's pretty amazing you had a picture of a telegram. Yes. Yeah, that's the original telegram. <laughs> Well, this is the other thing. Yeah, well, I've come across a lot of families when, as I've gone around the country talking, and people will say, "Oh, yeah, all my family papers are in the attic," and that's where I found Rosman's. Letter. It took me a year to find Ross's letters, and I went looked all over the country, and nobody in her family knew where they were, and only one grandson said, "Oh, there's some boxes of papers in the in this attic in Norwalk, Connecticut, a family friend," and he and he said, "I'll go look through them someday," and he didn't get to it. And he didn't get to it, and so I finally insisted. I said, I'll I'll meet you there with my husband, who's an investigative reporter. And Ben, he always, always comes back with the documents, as Steve knows. You, Steve, used to be his boss. Um, and so I took Ben with me. And he, Ben, was the one. He said, "You've got to go because you just never know what you're going to find." And we spent a couple of hours going through these old boxes. And guess who found the first letter from Roz? Ben. And he, you know, he taps me on the shoulder and he said, "Look at this." And there was this wonderful letter from Roz saying. Dearest Papa, Dottie, and I are sitting outside drying our sa- our heads in the sun. It's, you know, Sunday morning. You're all getting ready for church at St. Peter's, and we're about to go to the schoolhouse for the church, you know, Sunday school service. Um, and there her mother had, had typed them all when she got them, Folded them, numbered them, and they were all in a stack in order. And you know, they knew their, after their parents got over their horror at this thing, they knew that they, this was something quite extraordinary. And um, so, even though they were, they had been, you know, thrust into this box, they were there waiting to be discovered. Is my is my belief. And also, my mother and my grandmother are both retired librarians, and so they were very careful to keep the photograph (laughs) albums. And all the whatever librarians are here today, they're all—it's all really worth doing when you have these treasures. And you know, this this photograph turned up in just my aunt's collection of photographs. Cattle, well, that's another whole interesting story. Most of those, almost all of those ranchers were cattle ranchers, and that there was a big sheep and cattle war going on throughout the West in that era. And Ferry Carpenter actually ended up working in Washington, and he settled the sheep and cattle war. It, was, it went on for decades, and it was, this is in the era of Butch casting and the Sundance Kid, and all that stuff happened in this area. They, the cattle farmers hated the sheep uh, farmers because they'd come in and they the sheep would get in the water and they'd pollute the water and the sheep graze the, the grass down to the dirt and the, you know so they were they were sort of fighting over the same grasslands and you know they would they would settle these disputes at gunpoint I mean it was very violent for for decades Yes what they call fruit ranch Fruit? Than oh that's interesting Utah's right on the, right near where they, yeah, I don't know the if they.
0: And something
1: else. Yeah, there just wasn't enough water. And this, so it was a great idea. It was just, it. but in a lot of these homesteaders had come from the Midwest where the, the soil was much, much better, but they all thought, well, we're going to get eventually, you know, when you turn 21, you can get another 160 acres and you, can, you build your ranch. Now, Ferry Carpenter succeeded and another, this wonderful Emigrant from Russia um, who came penniless orphan who came over with dreams of becoming from white Russia with dreams of becoming a rancher Settled in Elkhead he becomes a character in the book Uh, Extraordinary person he very taught him the law so he learned about the law He became a cattle and sheep rancher. He ended up buying almost all the homesteads in the area and he became a millionaire and Ferry did very well, but most of them couldn't couldn't do it, and they just they they left and went went back to the Midwest. Many of them. Yes, over here. Again and again, you have these women above so, beyond the curve. In other words, they're going to Smith or they're Seneca Falls or they're abolitionists in this um, area. But I want to tell you about Hopkins because why like the relative is behind the curtain was yes. behind the curve. Yes. Much prized daughter of John Ward and she saved the whole hospital and the university because she was the wealthiest woman in the United States. What, when was that? In the late 19th century. Amazing. And what she did was she went to the Board
0: of Hopkins, and the board wouldn't want to spend a penny of the endowment, and you know, the whole thing was going to be washed away. Um, and she said, Okay, I'll give you this money as long as 10% it has to be given. Yeah, and classes still at
1: 80, so you get to few fewer anyway. But that's the history of it. I didn't even No, it's to- no, it's totally fascinating. I, and you know, the history of women's education is fairly shocking when you go back and look at it. And the the women who forged the way they were very few and far between. And imagine sitting in that class; she was probably the only woman in that class. You know, sitting behind that curtain. But now I'm glad to know why she was able to go there, because this the Midwest was it was much further ahead, as Woodrow Wilson said about letting women. There were many more coed schools. I mean, it didn't on the East Coast. Forget it. That, except for Hopkins, uh, it just did. You know that that just didn't didn't happen. But the mid and um, Oberlin uh, admitted the, some of the first African American students as well. So, so much for East Coast snobbery. Yes. Okay, last question. Um, I've been uh, going to Colorado for thirty years, and and the winter um, part of the book amazed me because to be out and that much snow and that much cold, and then go into their houses and school that weren't all that warm—it's very hard and very especially And I was wondering, were they really as positive as you make? I agree, although the thing that is so wonderful about these women, I think part of it was they didn't want to embarrass themselves, and they truly, and they were, so that's one thing, and they were so impressed by Mrs. Harrison and these other women up there who never complained and they had the hardest lives they couldn't believe it and remember they were good feminists and they thought all right if these women can do it with nothing then we can do it and they also knew it was just for a year I mean they Dorothy had wrote in a, in a later letter that if they hadn't both gotten married and Ross does get married too they probably would have kept up teaching for at least another year but in those days once you got married that was it your career was over but so there were a couple letters and I included them in the book where Dorothy complained a little bit she missed her fiance, and she missed the you know the the souffles, the cheese souffles at home, and she kind of whined to her mother, you know, you you don't know how hard it is out here with our sandwiches at lunch, but uh, she then she would immediately correct herself. But we have to we have to stick it out. I think it was hard. I really do for her. I think Roz it didn't bother her at all. She was she was totally in love. She was you know having this wonderful man courting her. She was beginning to imagine what her future was going to be. So. I think it was partly just because they knew it was going to come to an end pretty soon. But well, I went several times. I went once once in February, and then you have to wait until all the spring mud is gone, and then you go back up in in July. And that, July is when I took that trip to the top of the Continental Divide, and that was when I went back to Elkhead And I've now been many times. But no, I wanted to, and I really did want to ride. I mean, I. I was a little bit older, and I have to say, I did go riding in the summer, and when I, it was really hard, and when I got off the horse, I practically fell down, because it was, you know, I was riding one of these big, my grandmother would have called it a dray horse, a draft horse, you know, a, a big, you know, animal, he, these animals were gigantic, and she was tiny, and it's hard, <laughs> um, so, and they had never ridden before either, so I, I, how they did the whole thing, but they were great women, and um, there you have it. Thank you all.